Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Today is our second instalment around the theme of justice. And Astrid and I are joined in conversation by Rick Morton, who is an award-winning journalist, the author of 100 Years of Dirt, which is his memoir. And we're also talking to him about his new small book for Hachette on money. Rick Morton, thank you for joining us on Anonymous Was a Woman. Your newest book is On Money, which is part of the Hachette Small Book series. Tell us about it. Are you now a financial whiz? Are you going to go work for Macquarie Bank? (laughs) Everyone I know who has ever loved me just laughed openly when I told them that the name of my next book is On Money because anyone who's ever met me knows that I cannot handle my finances. Like not just can't handle in the way that people say they can't sing and then they're good at karaoke, but like I'm actually bad. I haven't had savings since I left school and I am a 33-year-old adult now on paper who has no assets, no investments, no house. I finally bought a car, but that's not a good asset apparently because I grew up in poverty with my single mum and my brother and sister just scraping and watching her, more importantly, watching her suffer so that we didn't have to. The book is really about what that did to my brain and it wasn't something I was aware of until much later on in life when I saw other people talking very broadly about this idea that we treat money differently if you come from that background. There is such a gulf between how people who grew up with even just a little bit of money but particularly people in middle class or rich families how they see money and how people like us see money because we see it as something that just serves a purpose to pay a bill if we've got it, whereas they know how to make it work for them and it creates this gulf. And so the book is kind of diving into all of those little interesting nooks and crannies. We are recording this in September 2020, Rick, and the world has obviously changed. I imagine On Money was commissioned before 2020 happened or before the pandemic happened. But now that we are here and we are watching the global and national and community-wide economic and financial impacts playing out. There are many more people now thinking about money and thinking about losing money and the stability of their households and their income sources. How do you feel about that, Rick, on a personal level, but also we're talking about justice and what do we need to do about this? That's a really interesting question because the thing that I found most fascinating about where we've been kind of thrust into as a people is that this old and perennial slogan about how poor people just didn't work hard enough or they clearly were too lazy to get a proper job. All of a sudden now we've got this caring rhetoric from a government that says, oh my God, people have lost their incomes and we're going to extend job seeker to all of these people deservedly because we couldn't possibly let them suffer. But the way it's being framed is that they had no say over their life and they were thrust into this circumstance by COVID-19. And it's interesting to me because that was precisely the same circumstances that had affected everyone, all the 700,000 people who were on the payment before this economic crisis. But the nature of the depression and the nature of the circumstances were just slightly different for different people. But it's the same set of kind of the overlay is the same. People ran into trouble. Everyone has different coping mechanisms. Some are better than others at handling stress. And people who have come from 
traumatic backgrounds, people with mental illness, single parents, they don't have the same tools that middle-class people do with stable jobs. So it's interesting to me to watch this change happen in real time. And I know deep in my cynical old heart that it's not going to hang around. And we've already seen this discussion now turn about cutting the supplement for the job seeker at the end of the year. And suddenly we're back to the deserving poor and the undeserving poor again. And that's what really grinds my gears because I think if you've been in that world, even just a little bit, you know that choice does not look the same to you as it does to other people. Some of them are just not choices at all and you do what you have to to survive and that changes you. And that's where the justice comes into it. I mean, justice is understanding for a start. Justice is putting yourself in someone's shoes and saying, how would I have done differently? Could I have done differently? And if you're honest, your answer would be no. Rick, one of the government's mantras, particularly the Prime Minister's, has been this idea that if you have a go, you get a go. I tried to be as ochre as I could manage without um, (laughs) starting to feel unwell with trying to change my voice so much. But inherent in that phrase is a sense of justice, right? There is a sense of if you do something, you get something in return. But if you don't have a go, then you don't get something in return. What's your take on that phrase, you have to have a go to get a go? Yeah, it, <laughs> have a go, you get a go. Uh, I can't do it either. I'm not Oka. I would love to be, but I'm not. I mean, that's everything that's wrong with the debate because inherent in that phrasing, in that kind of grammatical logic, is this idea that there are people out there now who are not having a go. You know, the mere fact that the Prime Minister thinks he needs to remind people to have a go in order to get their reward from government tells you everything you need to know about what they think is the current state of play, which is people are not trying hard enough. And that's just not true. Not a word of a lie. I have not met anyone who sacrificed more for her children than my mum and didn't get anywhere for it because her goal, I guess, has been to see her three children make it into adulthood physically, but also mentally. You know, loving takes time and effort and care. And she was working as well as getting the single parent pension. And they were towards the end there, they were berating her for not working enough hours in a week, even though we're in a country town. And it was the only job she was qualified for because she left school in year 10 many years ago and then married my dad and lived on a cattle station in the middle of nowhere. Hadn't been in the workforce for 15 years when he threw us all out and froze the bank accounts. So this was a job she had. And It was just nonstop and the stress and the worry. I mean, in the On Money book, I mentioned that, so the brain takes up about two or 3% of the body's mass, but at rest, so when it's not doing anything, it takes up 24, 25% of its energy output. And so this idea that there's a cognitive tax when you're stressed and worried about making ends meet, it's not just a theory, it's a real thing. And I've, you know, as a dumb adult, and, and I make the distinction between being poor and being broke, as an adult, I was structurally poor, but mostly I was just broke because I I was done with my money. But even then, you know, the effort it takes to get through a day when you know you don't have any money, when you're trying to feed yourself, it's exhausting. And it only occurred to me recently as I've moved into this kind of middle-class existence that I, for the first time in my life, didn't have to think about whether my card was going to get rejected. I still did, but only because it's so ingrained in me that I've still got this PTSD, I guess, from being like, oh, my God. But it occurred to me there was a week period where that didn't happen and I wasn't thinking about it. I was like, holy, is this what it's like? And so this idea that this is have a go, get a go slogan is so bonkers to me because it kind of reveals the cards of the government. To me, it, it's quite similar to this idea of mutual obligations in the welfare system because the idea being it's meant to be mutual and yet 
<laughs> under the system we've got, particularly with employment services, there is no mutuality in there at all. The job seekers are meant to jump through all of these hoops and they get sweet FA for it. They're living below the poverty line before code came along and they were being hounded by these job providers who wanted to get bonuses from the government. I mean, if there was any mutual obligation there at all, it was between the, the government and the job providers, which was quite a sweet little racket they had going. One of the things that we all know, but I don't think we necessarily think about it enough, Rick, is that inequality or injustice often compounds. So if somebody is poor, what happens if they also don't have education options or also are ill or have a disability or any of the other things that might happen Mm -hmm. in somebody's life? And if different inequalities start compounding in someone's life or in a family's life, the structural forces working against them mount and continue to mount over time and over generations. In addition to your books, Rick, you are a fierce journalist and I get very excited when you have (laughs) another article out, particularly your longer form journalism. Mm. And you have explored aged care. You have explored NDIS and disability. You have touched on the environment, all sorts of other injustices that we continually face. Can you talk to us about what drives you to report on these injustices? I can't speak for everyone from every community with any particular knowledge to race or or even disability. I've had my own mental health issues, but I wouldn't say that I've got a disability. Perhaps that says something about me, I don't know. But I did grow up poor and I did have a single mum. I grew up in the regions without access to public transport or even a proper diet for that matter and with a mum who had few options. And I think for anyone who's honest in their own heart, who's been in a city, and I'm gay, so um, (laughs) uh, in regional Queensland, which I think counts as a handicap, but for anyone who's come from those kind of situations, whatever their makeup, I think if you're honest about what that does to you as a person, it means that you are constantly trying to make yourself more aware of how that might apply to other people in their lives. And not always perfectly, like I have failed in the past and I will fail again, but it's made me more alive to that, I guess, in other areas where I don't have experience. And aged care is a good example of that. My grandma had a relatively okay time in a nursing home. She was the only grandparent I ever got to witness in that situation. It was a pretty nice home, all things considered. It was very depressing still. And she had all her faculties, as mum liked to say, and was able to remember in fine detail things deep in her past, whereas most of the people around her couldn't. And so just from that scenario alone, it kind of pricked something in me, I guess, about is this what I want? Is this what people I love should have or endure? And the same with the NDIS. I mean, I think I've got a habit of picking in journal, in newspaper journalism, old school newspaper journalism, those two topics are considered unsexy. That would be the terminology thrown around in the office going, ah, oh, Rick's picked the unsexy topics again. Just grabbed me. I'm like, I get mad when I see things that have been ignored because I, I guess I've witnessed that personally in my own life, just kind of growing up without a voice. But the thing that drives me, I guess, is particularly when I was writing about the NDIS over the last seven years, I would have people ring up sobbing at all hours of the day, just absolutely in tears, good people who had done nothing wrong, who had been completely atomized by this system, who had been deconstructed and kind of ran into the ground so that they were basically, they had given up trying to get support for clear cases of disability. There was no argument that they needed support and care. Towards the end of my time at The Australian, when I was writing about these issues, I could just put emails into the National Disability Insurance Agency and they were so terrified of my name that they would fix it before I even got to writing a story. Yes. And so <laughs> I know, I mean, I'm, I, I've had people subsequently who've left the agency tell me that there was like a five alarm system and my, my name just 
triggered DEFCON 1, basically. Rick, that is a badge of honour. I absolutely agree. And you know what? And But the thing that annoyed me about it was they were always relatively the same situation, but with different people. So they never fixed the systemic issue. And partly because I was tired and exhausted personally, and I felt guilty for not being able to get to all of these cases, but mostly because they just should have fixed it. I was like, it shouldn't take a journalist having to even threaten to write a story because most of the time I didn't even write the story. I just put the questions in and I didn't have to do anything more than that because it was fixed for that family. But then you'd get another family in almost exactly the same circumstances. And I remember thinking back to kind of in the teeth of our own poverty and upbringing in kind of regional Queensland, we had no cultural access. We had no access to the media. We didn't even know how to get in contact with anyone at a newspaper. And I remember these people who'd reached out were almost invariably middle class or they had an advocacy organisation that was just really switched on and good. And one of the ones that broke my heart the most was this single mum. She had a little girl who was about four and her little girl was in a wheelchair, but the NDIS just wouldn't pay for a neck rest. And so this girl just wheeled herself around with her head lolloped over to one side. And this mum worked shifts at a diner, essentially, in Penrith. She was wary about speaking to the media, but was put in touch with me by someone that she trusted. And I just remember thinking how many more people out there, like my mum, are not getting help because they don't have the cultural access to what should be a last resort option, which is the media. That is what compelled me to keep going because it just, it boils my blood, to be quite honest. There's an analogy that's often used about what it's like to go through life as a person of colour and that it's like playing a game of Monopoly except that you have to start one round after everyone else when they've already bought up all the good properties and you're stuck with the electric company. And I was thinking about that while you were talking and I was thinking the analogy extends to growing up poor, which is that instead of starting the game with $200 in your pocket, you start your game with $20 in your pocket. And sure, you've got $20 in your pocket, but you can't buy anything for $20. So what good is that going to do you? (laughs) You can't have a go with just $20 in your pocket. And more importantly, not can you, I mean, you can buy some things with $20, but you pay more for them. So you can't buy the 24 pack of toilet paper. You can't get the special deals at Coles. So the unit price of the things you buy by the very nature of your penury, is higher than what a rich person would pay. So in almost every conceivable sense, the game is stacked. And, I mean, I don't think you can talk about these things without being intersectional about it. And so I've always talked about things through the prism of class because it's what I understand. You know, when it comes to class and race, there's a multiplier effect in terms of disadvantage. If you're, you know, if you're from a migrant background and you're working poor and you've got a disability, then there's a three times multiply. Like all of these things matter. This is not a university theory. (laughs) Like these are real situations and real life scenarios. So yeah, you might start with 20 bucks, but it'll go more quickly. And more importantly, and this is the point that I never understood as a kid and I still don't as an adult because of the way my brain has formed around this issue. But I don't know how to make money work for me. I don't know how to make more money with the money I have, except to just stumble into lucky opportunities where I have to work for it. The thing that they teach you, even just through osmosis, being brought up in a middle-class family or a wealthy family, is you know how to manage your money. You know how to invest it. You know what options to put it into because your parents treat it, and rightfully so, as this almost sacred thing that can be used for good or evil, and they just know innately what to do with it. 
Whereas I got my first paycheck as an 18 year old and spent the entire fucking thing <laughs> because I could. And then I kept doing it because I'm like, what if you're poor again? What if you're poor again? And all of this is taken away. You'll never be able to buy that nice thing. And yeah, so there's kind of just this complete collapse, I guess, in the executive function part of my brain where I know how to handle all these issues. It's not something we necessarily get taught. You know, it's that thing that you see from people around you. And if you're not in a position to see people around you treating money as a tool to make more money or as a tool to look after the family home or whatever, how can anyone ever learn? Rick, you just said that you have always looked at the stories that you tell and the reporting that you do through a lens of class. We all know 2020 is not going the way we want it. Where do you see the greatest injustices that make you want to dig deeper? So the thing that... And it's not something I've covered a lot of in my career because I actually find it so terrifying personally as a subject. But something I'm about to start work on for the Saturday paper, hopefully soon, is about child protection. We've had a lot of stories about domestic violence during lockdown. And I was talking to someone at a department who was saying nobody is looking at the kids. And I think probably as an adult, the one time I've cried the most in my entire life, except when I had my mental breakdown for the first time at age 21, the time I've cried the most was when I read the chapter on children in Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do. I sobbed like a baby because even though I didn't grow up, my father was not physically abusive to us, but I grew up in this environment of fear. Certainly my mother experienced that fear. And it never occurred to me until I got my own diagnosis of complex PTSD, how much children pick up. And when I've been researching these other issues about this kind of multiplier effect of disadvantage, and I'm working on another book at the moment for HarperCollins about vulnerability, and I've written a whole chapter about the Romanian orphans under the communist dictator Ceausescu and how they were just never touched. You know, they were relinquished by their families who were forced to go work in the cities. The women were made mandated to have more, more, more children for the state when they knew they couldn't care for them. And the thing that, um, you know, I read the researchers book from Harvard when they were going into these institutions for the first time in the early 1990s when the world and Romania found out about them. And there were some babies who would just sit there and lay in their crib staring at the ceiling with nothing on their face, like no look, no emotion. And the researchers from Harvard said it took considerable effort to get some of them to smile and some of them never did. You know, I didn't have that background. I had a tough background when it comes to love and protection, but I still had a mum who loved me fiercely and is just so generous and almost childlike in that love and and innocence. And I'm still pretty stuffed up from it, to be quite honest. And so I think about kids in the child protection system. I'm like, what hope do they actually have when, you know, it feels like we should have learned these lessons of the world in the 1990s about connection. I was doing an event in Byron Bay last year and one of the women who was in my kind of little workshop was a foster carer. And she said, the thing that makes is the hardest for me, and I understand why this is the case, and she does too, but the hardest thing for her was watching these foster kids in her home go through a really difficult time and not being able to hug them. Because she's like, I just want to give them a hug and treat them the same as my other children. And I know why that is the case, but still, there is just something so frightening, I guess, about all of the horrors we're asking these kids in particular to absorb and then to expect things to be somehow okay when they grow up. So it's kind of something I've danced around in my career. I've tried to avoid writing about it, which is very selfish, but I don't 
think I can delay it any longer because the more I read about every aspect of hurt and trauma, it starts in childhood. Rick, in 100 Years of Dirt, which is your first book and is a memoir and you've spoken about it a little bit today, there's so much beauty in the language that you use. You have an incredible use of words that brings a real visceral sense of being there to witness accidents, to witness poverty, to witness drug addiction. And there is a real gentleness to your writing and to your tone. And I wanted to ask, when I think about justice I and the issues I feel where there are great injustices, the overriding feeling for me is anger. Do you have a sense of anger in your work or is that something you're able to set aside? I try not to be angry. I do get angry occasionally. I'm not an angry person by nature. And if anything, I think I'm too naive and forgiving sometimes. You know, I was always the peacemaker in my family. So even, you know, when we were young and and mum being the absolute saint that she is, despite everything that had ever happened, she was like, you need to have a relationship with your father, at least in primary school. And so as long as he's not hurting you, you should see him every other school holidays because he still lived on a cattle station, which was a 21-hour bus ride away. So me and my brother used to go out and visit him and the woman who used to be my governess who became my stepmom. And my sister was too young. She was only a baby when all of this happened. So we used to go out there and my brother, knowing what had happened by now, just would rain hell down on them both. And I would find myself siding with the enemy, at least just so there wasn't yelling. (laughs) I think that's carried through into my adulthood. I want to confront on policy. I want to confront on where things have gone wrong in a system. But I don't think it's particularly helpful to find people to blame as individuals unless you're a caricature monster. And they do exist, but they're rare unless you're just totally irredeemable. I don't think it's helpful to point out individuals who might have been trying their best given the circumstances they were they were in themselves. And I did this with my dad in the book as well because I didn't want him to be a villain. And I think part of being vulnerable and understanding other people as human beings and understanding that trauma is a real thing and that your your background does to some extent govern how your life might unfold. I think if you're going to be that understanding for yourself, you have to apply it to other people. I've done stupid things in my life, things I'm really not proud of, both when I was younger and more recently as an adult in my late 20s and even in my early 30s, like only a few years ago. Things that are not good things that, uh, you know, things that I will think about for the rest of my life. But I don't think... I'm not making excuses for them. I, you know, I've always said to understand someone is not to excuse behaviour. But I do think if we want to make things better, we have to try insofar as we can meet people somewhere in the middle where the truth might actually lie. And so in my reporting, my anger is mostly reserved for the systems, occasionally for politicians, because I figure even though they are human beings themselves, I figure they can take it. You know, it is their job to be responsible for these systems. But for people themselves, I try not, I I just find it such a, not a useful emotion. That's not to judge anyone else who does. I mean, I think people respond to things in all the ways they know how and the ways they deem effective, but it's not something I've ever been able to deploy usefully, I guess, in both my personal life or even in my career. Rick, you are more enlightened than I am. I (laughs) I have one final question for you. You've just outlined how you work to address injustice and how you approach that. But for the rest of us who aren't journalists, 
what can we do aside from obviously pay for high quality independent journalism, which I think we should all be doing? <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, please subscribe to the Saturday paper. I didn't come here to do that. Look, I mean, I people are really nice about my journalism and it's quite a funny thing because I got into journalism because I wanted to be a journalist. I thought that they were happy byproducts of being able to change the world, which I realise now is not true. And I don't like this idea that journalists are heroes. We do it because we like it, right, as a start. So I got, I'm lucky in a sense that like I, I'm doing a job that can be helpful, certainly for individuals, occasionally, systemically when it comes to a few little policy bits and bobs here and there, and maybe in terms of just giving people a voice. But it doesn't leave a lot of other time in my personal life to do the things that I might otherwise have wanted to do, but have always found to be a little bit scary coming from regional Queensland. I didn't attend my first protest until 2011, which was for same-sex marriage. But, you know, I do think knowing about these issues is important and reading about them is important. You know, on issues, I'm not a joiner by nature. You know, the way I grew up, nothing about my background was lent to I, I didn't grow up with politics in terms of the system that we have. I grew up with internalised politics, clearly, from the circumstances I was in. So I've always found it kind of difficult as an adult to make myself go to an event or a protest or a march or even to write to decision makers. At the moment, the higher education reform bill that is before the parliament and will go, at some point they will vote on it and they need three of five crossbench votes and the one that matters the most is Jackie Lambie. So, you know... Tell her, tell your representatives, particularly where they can make a difference. But it does get demoralising to look at all the systems we have and go, how does this change? And I don't think I'm the right person to lead that conversation. There are much smarter activists, people who are actually activists out there who are doing that work. Find them and join them. Rick, thank you so much for your time, your insights and this beautiful new little book. Jamila and Astrid, thank you so much. That was the final episode of Anonymous Was a Woman for Season 2. I truly hope that you have enjoyed listening to it as much as Astrid and I have enjoyed making this podcast. We want to thank Bad Producer Productions for making us sound really good and we want to thank Future Women for making this possible in the first place. Thank you to everyone who is behind the scenes and thank you to you the people who tune in and the people who read. People who read are very much the best kind of people. So we are most grateful and I'm awfully hopeful that we'll be back with you very soon. 